0: Welcome to the Family Worship Companion, supplementing your personal reading of Scripture with a Christ-centered emphasis and real-life application for every member of the family. So today we're in Genesis chapter 8, which gives to us the ending of the flood God bringing the Ark to rest, Noah disembarking the Ark and worshipping God. And the chapter also details the fact that God will never destroy the world again in this way. So as we dig a little deeper into the chapter, no doubt it was an experience of many long nights and days upon the Ark. 371, all told. 371 days for Noah and his family on the Ark before finally they were able to leave. So first one begins with a statement that God remembered Noah. The idea is not to communicate that God ever forgets his people or even forgets anything, but to communicate the, the experience, the sense of there are these moments, these junctures, these events, these evident providential experiences that indicate God does remember his people. In this case, it's the assuaging of the waters And by that token, God is communicating to Noah and Noah is understanding that God has not forgotten him and his family. None of us deserve these tokens, but God is pleased to send them along the way. Verse 4 tells us that the ark rests on the mountains of Ararat. And uh, to this day, Armenians especially, though Ararat is now in Turkey, Armenians will signify that this mountain, which used to be in Armenian territory, uh, this is where the Ark landed. Now, we don't know that for sure, and there's all sorts of claims about having found the Ark, and remnants of the Ark, and indications that the Ark are, is in that region and area. Certainly, it is likely that that was the approximate area where Noah disembarked from his Ark, but uh, amidst all the talk about, hey, do you think they'll find the Ark, or you know, men claiming that maybe the Ark has been found, For years, I believed that, you know, you try to visualize Noah getting off that ark. The world is destroyed, completely destroyed. He needs to rebuild. He needs to set up home, set up his community. And it stands to reason, I think, that he takes the ark, he dismantles the ark, and utilizes whatever he can from the ark. And so it's unlikely that much would have been left over. Verse 5 says that the waters decreased continually. And you get this slow working, and no doubt it was testing Noah's patience, and he was, you know, beginning to feel the desire to get off that ark. But at the same time, God is working patience in Noah, as he does in many of us by the slow processes over the course of his his providential working. Verses 7 through 12, we get the details of the two birds that are sent out. Uh, We get an indication into the nature of these creatures, one of which never comes back. The raven probably finds a carcass to land upon and feast upon and and is completely at home there, whereas the dove uh, cannot do that and will only stay away from the ark once it can set its foot upon the new world. Of course, this illustrates wonderfully for us as something of the Christian experience, in that there are two kinds of people in this world, those that are at home here and get involved in all the filth of this world, and others that feel like they're pilgrims and they constantly are going out, but they come back in, they come back into Christ until finally they will set foot upon the ground of a new world where they will feel perfectly at home and will no longer be strangers and pilgrims. Verse 20 gives to us the first mention of an actual altar being built. Now, there's indications of that, of course, with with Abel, but here's the first mention of it. And Noah, his first act getting off the ark is to worship God. This is first, first thing, not building home, not setting up the new community it is the worship of God. And so then we're told that with the altar arises a sweet-smelling savour. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 teaches us that that savour that truly satisfies God, a sweet before God, is Christ. So we get here even an insight into the fact that God's not really satisfied simply by his judgment. Noah realises that what will finally satisfy God is the sacrifice of, of a life. Of course, that illustrates to us what Christ is doing. He can't just pour out his judgment upon the world and be satisfied if there is to be a people that are saved. The saved people have to have a sacrifice for them, and Christ provides that sacrifice by the offering up of himself upon Calvary's cross. So, let's give some thought to application. First of all, boys and girls, let me address you. Uh, You ought to follow your parents, if they're saved, into the ark. You should follow them into Christ and believe. The end of the chapter tells us that the imaginations of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so maybe you're already at an age where you sense the the evil in your heart. And maybe your parents help you to see the evil in your heart. But maybe you feel it. There's evil in my heart. What am I to do? Well, water, flood, Judgment can't wash away the evil of your heart, but the blood of Christ can. And so that's what I'm saying. You need to get into Christ, boys and girls. You need to get into Christ. Trust him, believe on him, and that evil heart will be transformed by Jesus himself. Secondly, we get a little reminder in verse 16 that if we want to go and do something new, best to wait for instruction from God. I know that might sound to some hyper-pietistic, or that we can do anything we want as long as it's not sinful. I think we need to be careful with that. It wasn't sinful for Noah to to just step out of the ark, but he waits until God says, go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife, and so on. And I think there are times in our lives where we really need to just pause and seek God, what am I to do here? and wait on him. And I always point individuals, couples to the 25th Psalm and tell them, pray over that Psalm. Pray for guidance. Pray for God to lead you. He does, and he will. Third, again, I would just want to point out that with the gradual a receding of the waters. It put into my mind the thought of the Christian's experience with sin. We so badly want this full final victory here now in this life, even before we get to heaven. But our experience will be one in which while we hide in Christ, there isn't this full deliverance from sin in this world. And so we must accept this experience. We are here in this world. We're fighting sin. We get this gradual victory that will not be a final victory until we step into heaven itself. Fourth, the example of Noah when he steps off the ark and offers an offering to God. It just blows my mind. In fact, it wasn't that long ago when I was reading this passage and really struck by that fact that here's a man with limited means. Every creature matters, every one of them. He is trying to repopulate the world and every animal has a compounding effect, and yet he takes and offers to God before anything else. And it shows that even with limited means, even when we have nothing, we present our first fruits to God. Proverbs 3 teaches this. And we must bring first to God, not after. We don't bring once we figure out what we've left over and then bring that to God. There is. I believe that while... Some may argue the tithe isn't explicitly commanded in the New Testament. I think we have to wrestle with the fact that that functions like a bare minimum. And if there's grace in our hearts, that's the bare minimum test. But we bring our first fruits, we bring first to God what it is we, we endeavor to give to him and to his kingdom and then see it's, it's, it's a test of faith, isn't it? Because when I, when I do everything else and what's left over, there's no faith in that. It's like, well, this is left over, I can give it to God. The test of faith, walking by faith, is first giving to God and then trusting him with the rest that it will meet the needs that we have. So Noah stands as, I think, a tremendous example of this. Fifth, I think also Noah's worship of God in the context reminds us that when we begin something new, worship is a good thing. And So we, we start a new job, start it in worship, we start a new day, we start it in worship, we start a new semester, start it in worship. We start a new week. What do we do? We start it in worship. And I think there's a principle here in which we we start something new, begin in worship. Start a new marriage. Start it in worship. Whatever it is, anything new to begin in this note of worship is a wonderful practice that I think we could carry through our lives with much profit.